This is Attica Locke, and you're listening to Writer Types. This is Meg Gardner. I'm Lori Rader Day. Hey, I'm Lou Burney. This is Lee Child. This is Rachel Housel Hall. This is Ace Atkins. This is Kelly Garrett. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. Excellent question. I'm Don Winslow, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery podcast. I'm Eric Beatner, and with me is S.W. Loudon. Steve, you know, it's September, the kids are back at school, and we are back with a new episode. So who's with us today? Today we talked to Laura Benedict, who explains why we asked her to be on the show over email and not in person. If anybody came to our door, we would hide with our shotguns in the bedroom. And J. Todd Scott tells us how he felt when he learned he was going to be a guest on Writer Types. I was devastated. And I'm like, well, my career is dead already. Plus, Catherine Ryan Howard gives listeners advice on what to do while you're listening to our podcast. You've loads of time to be like cleaning the crime scene and getting your stories straight. All that is brought to you by our sponsor, Blackstone Publishing. They have a tremendous list of crime and mystery titles like uh, Greasy Ben by Chris Lackey and Ash by James Rayburn. And, you know, I love that last James Rayburn book, so I'm looking forward to that one, Steve. Greasy Bend is an amazing book title. <laughs> you can find out more about other excellent Blackstone Publishing books at blackstonepublishing.com. And, you know, Steve, the Malmans will also be dropping by here later to tell us what they've been reading and what they're looking forward to for fall. So uh, have you been excited about anything you've read lately? I just finished Wanderers by Chuck Wendig. Have you read this? I have not. Uh, I've heard a lot about it, and uh, I do know it's an epic. It's a doorstop of a book, right? It's huge. But what's interesting about that is I just tore through it. I read it really fast, could not get enough of this story. Uh, it's a dystopian sort of end of the human race techno thriller. Uh, it gets compared to The Stand by Stephen King a lot, which I read that book so long ago that I couldn't make any fair comparisons, except that they're both epics uh, and both deal with sort of pandemics. But this was a great book for me to read after having read books like Recursion by Blake Crouch and The Warehouse by Rob Hart and Fall by Neil Stevenson. I, I just loved this book, and I, and I totally highly recommend it. How about you? I just got a chance uh, to get an early look at a book called The Lying Room by Nikki French. And we talked to Nikki French before, and this was a husband and wife writing team that Nikki French is a, a piece of both of their names. So this was a, a co-written book, and this is a brand new thing for them that is after the, their long-running series that they finished. This is a standalone book. So I was interested to see where they were going to go after this series. And it turns out they have written an extremely noir story, but it's got this weird sort of proper British twist to it. So mm. it's, not, it's not this down-and-dirty James Cain, Jim Thompson American noir. It's like it was one of the most tense dinner party scenes I've ever read. <laughs> and it, it just had this sort of slightly skewed point of view that I found really intriguing wrapped in this extremely noir story that I was really into. So I really, really dug it. Are, are we talking about like arsenic in the tea kind of English? 
I not far off, but it was one of those like you know it's it's a woman. I, I'm I'm not giving anything away because this is all in the in the very early chapters. You know, a woman who uh, has been having an affair and goes over to the apartment of the man she's having an affair with, finds him dead on the floor, and out of self-preservation, not wanting the affair to be discovered, she doesn't report it to the police. And of course, in her trying to save herself, things just go terribly, terribly wrong in, in increasingly horrible ways. And secrets abound and, and, and revelations are revealed. But again, it's all wrapped around this this sort of just British attitude is the only way I can describe it that, that's only a little bit different in the same way that like they speak English, but you listen to it and it's clearly in a different accent. And I think the noir in this book is in a different accent, if that makes sense. It does. And it sounds to me like you've got lots of questions for Nikki French, so maybe we should have him back on the show. We are working on just that. So they will be uh, uh, on the show shortly, and I look forward to talking with them about this book. And uh, it's definitely one that I can I can highly recommend. Excellent. Well, let's talk to some people right now, Steve. What do you say? I like people. <laughs> well, first up is author Laura Benedict. She is a prolific author of multiple genres, and her latest book is called The Stranger Inside. We spoke with Laura about her paranoia, her husband, author Pinkney Benedict, and the importance of reading as part of a writing career. And Steve, you know, we'll also find out an essential accessory that you and I have been missing out on in the shower. Is it a butcher's knife? It's not far off. Oh, okay. You have written a lot of different stuff. You're kind of hard to pin down as an author. You've written uh, cozies. You've got uh, more of a, like a gothic side with your Bliss House novels. Uh, and then your most recent novel, The Stranger Inside, I guess is uh, kind of domestic suspense, let's call it. So I want to know, like, is your audience that you're seeking out, is it just yourself? Or are you just sort of following whatever <laughs> idea sparks you? I like that. Is your audience just yourself? That's so funny because I, I, I've I never been one of those writers who writes for herself. I just, you know, I just write, you know, and, and pray I find an audience. I guess my writing role model, Margaret Atwood, you know, mm. Margaret Atwood doesn't sit around and go, Oh gosh, I can only, you know, I can only write science fiction novels or I can only write feminist novels, you know. I like to read a lot of stuff. I started out thinking I would be a literary writer and I really sucked at it. <laughs> so I decided to write what I like. You know, you got to change things up. I like to, I like to amuse myself. I get bored if I do the same thing over and over. I, I think, you know, starting with Margaret Atwood, you're setting the bar pretty high for yourself. Well, why not? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. why not? <laughs> yeah. What do you say to the, the young writers out there who are looking up and saying, well, all right, I'm going to set Laura Benedict as my role model? Oh, my God, I would say lie down and take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Please. Stop. Don't do it. You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't publish my first novel until I was in my 40s, you know, and I'm only on number eight now. I've done some anthologies as well. If you want to make money, don't follow me, please. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are easier ways to make a living. I, I figured out like when I uh, got my first contract for two books with Balanced Side, 
that I sat down and kind of looked at, you know, an hourly wage over the past, you know, 20 years of uh, writing. Don't do it. I would, I would have been doing so much better if I'd gotten a job at Hardee's. It was, it was kind of just around Hardy's level. Yeah, writing doesn't pay the bills for me, but I love it. Well, you know, uh, I, we appreciate your modesty. Um, unfortunately, you're now our role model, so we're going to expect you to live up to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she fell right into that. I got, yeah. a, I, got, I got out of bed at 9 o'clock in the morning for you all, so it's a good place to start. <laughs> We're both still in bed. Uh, uh, Laura, The Stranger Inside has such a great hook to it. Uh, coming home and finding someone living in your house. Uh, was it based yeah. on any real fears you have of something like this happening to you? You know, every book I write it has my fears in it. I'm, I'm a super, super paranoid person. I always have been. You know, for my first book was, you know, because I had a small daughter and I worried about her dying all the time because you know if you have small kids you worry about them you know it's suicide watch all the time right <laughs> um, and, and so stranger inside you know here I am I, I mean always when I've lived in the city when I've lived in the country you know I have these wicked dreams where people are like trying to get into my house all the time and I'm surrounded, you know, people are camping out in my yard and back in our woods and they're banging on the windows like zombies. And, you know, I wake up screaming all the time. My poor husband, he's, he's so good to me because he's like, okay, it's okay. You're just screaming. Uh, yeah, it comes from fear. Can you put your husband on? Because I want to talk to him about <laughs> the fact that you bring no money into the equation and you're super paranoid. <laughs> the man is a saint. Uh, you know, actually work right now <laughs> as it should be and please say he works at hardy's oh you know, I, you know he'd probably be happy at hardy's but uh he teaches creative writing okay. at southern illinois university in addition to being married to a creative writing professor you also once had a writing professor tell you that you would never get published and I want to know, like, looking back and obviously living with your husband, do you see a lot of value in taking classes? Or do you think that your craft is something that you've just built over years and years of putting your butt in the seat and just doing it? You know, you can do it both ways. Um, oh, that, that was, that was know, very diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the guy who told me, he told me that my work was um, too – plotty. It was too plot oriented because of course we all know people hate plots. You know, they go to the movies and they're like, oh crap, this thing has a plot. I'm getting out of here, you know? <laughs> and so what a drag that is. Well what that taught me is I didn't belong in an MFA workshop. I'm not an MFA type. Um, I think everybody has their okay, I'm gonna be cliche. Everybody has their own journey, right? Um, the most important the two most important things are for a writer are to read lots and lots and lots and lots. Um, who is that? I don't know. He said it. You read three times as much as you write. And then you have to write. Those are really the only two requirements. It's, it's an easy gig if you're willing to keep your butt in the chair and keep reading. Like, I cannot diagram a sentence. <laughs> and I, I'm not a grammar person, but I, I know grammar and I know how to write from reading. 
you know, and so many people come to writing and they haven't read anything. I'm sorry, that's my soapbox. Young writers don't read enough. I'm really fascinated by the idea of having two super talented writers uh, in one family. Do you guys find yourself around the dinner table sort of inadvertently brainstorming ideas for books and then find that you've both included those ideas in different scenes in your own books? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) No. We we talk about a lot of things. We talk about his work a lot. We talk about movies. We talk about cat videos. We talk about our kids. And we discuss stuff. Um, He doesn't look at my work and I don't look at his. That's wise. I think I think that's that's safe to keep it a little bit compartmentalized. Well, actually, the answer to my question then is you don't actually know if you guys have written the same scene. <laughs> I I actually have read all of his. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say the same for him, but that's all right. I still love him. Other people tell him how good I am, so that's all I need. There you go. <laughs> okay, so. Fall is upon us now, so it's almost Halloween, and we're gonna get, we're gonna guess that you are a big Halloween person. Are are we right with that? I'm a I like Halloween. Um, I kind of miss Halloween and having kids, having little kids. You know, I was way more into Halloween when I was uh, when I had you know my daughter's like 27 now. You know, my son's in college and. I'm lucky, you know, if I get a bowl of Smarties out, right? <laughs> and, and it's just for us because we live in the country. And if anybody came to our door, we would hide with our shotguns in the bedroom if they came, if they came on Halloween night. Because we'd be like, no, no, nobody's coming up here. You're not the kind of person who, who decorates your house even though no one's going to stop by. No, it's true. It's true. I have a, I have a garage full of Halloween uh of Halloween, but that I don't put out. So no, not really. Well, I'm sure you don't go out to the garage much from all the people camped out there trying to get you. <laughs> that in the snake. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we get snakes. We live in the woods, man. I had to kill one with a hammer once in my bathroom. It was so scary. It was a, it was a copperhead. It was like this big and I just got down the shower and I'm not going to give you, you know, <laughs> it's just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And so like the closet was right behind me. And so I, I grabbed a hammer and I was like, ah, ah, ah. You, anyway. you don't need to lie to us. We know with your paranoia, you, you actually shower with a hammer. We know that that's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this great idea for a movie now based on our conversation called Killing Snakes with a Hammer on a Plane. What do you think? Hmm, I, I like it. I like it. I've never uh, killed anything in a bathroom other than maybe a spider here and there. Um, yeah, me too. Let's go with that. I haven't killed anything in a bathroom <laughs> either. <laughs> well, Steve, I have a question for you. Have you ever been to Ireland? I have not. I have been to England. Um, I have been to Wales. I have not been to Ireland. Have you? I have not either. And I really want to go. Well, I should say I have always really wanted to go. But I've been reading a whole lot of books from Ireland lately. uh, And they're not exactly great ambassadors for the tourist industry there. (laughs) Hmm. 
But uh, the latest that I, I got a chance to look at was Rewind from Catherine Ryan Howard. And Catherine is an Edgar nominee and a rising star in her native Ireland and indeed here in the U.S. Well, we spoke with Catherine from her home in Dublin for our Five Questions With segment. So your first novel, Distress Signals, was shortlisted for several awards and has actually been translated into five languages, including Swedish, Chinese, and Japanese. Have you been able to travel to any of those countries to promote any of your books? No. (laughs) Oh, so sad. No, I mean, we're quite lucky here anyway, because, you know, I do get to travel a lot. Luckily, a lot of those countries are only an hour's flight away from me here. But um, no, I mean, the thing with foreign deals is that it's so exciting to see your book come out in a different language. But really, the States, Ireland and the UK is where I get to go and do promo. And as for the rest of the books, I just it's exciting to see. Like I have an edition of Distress Signals in Japanese. And I think it's so funny because I have no idea what that says I just have to trust that it's actually the book I've written but even though you know I don't get to go it's still fun to have that translation on the shelf but I just think it's really interesting like what countries take what books so I think like Japan took distress signals possibly because a lot of Japanese people like going on cruises I don't know the Scandinavians seem to really like the the ones where I leave dead bodies in the canal a lot in Dublin so it's just really interesting but um I hope I'm also not turning them off coming here on holiday on vacation because I do kill a lot of people in my books I'm not exactly the best advertisement for the country but actually it's you know a very nice place we're all lovely nothing bad happens come and visit (laughs) nice try so As an author, if you could travel to any other country in the world and murder somebody, where would you go? Oh, well, here's my tip, okay? But don't quote me if you're on trial. Um, My first book was all about a serial killer on a cruise ship because if you want to get away with murder, you don't go to any country at all. You get on a cruise ship in international waters because, as I discovered, um, when the ship is in international waters, the only authority on board is the authority of the country where the ship is registered. And guess what? They're not on board. They're back in that country. So if something happens, they have to travel to the ship. It'll usually just be one or two police officers. You've loads of time to be like cleaning the crime scene and getting your stories straight and all that. So as I said, don't quote me, but that's that's my tip. Cruise ships. Well- I guess this is as good a time as any to make the big announcement about the writer type's first annual listener cruise. <laughs> I hope you're not inviting me because I just can't. They won't let me on now after I wrote that book. So I'm just a non grata on cruise ships. <laughs> I, I have a feeling that we would reach port with fewer uh, passengers than when we started somehow. But loads of stories, loads of stories. <laughs> well, it's worth it then. A couple of bodies along the way. <laughs> well, now your second book, The Liar's Girl, was nominated for an Edgar Award. It was named uh, Best Book of 2018 by the Irish Independent. When you have that many accolades for your first two books, did it then make it difficult for you to get into writing this latest book, Rewind? Um, I really think the difficulty was the second book. I had really bad, like, difficult second album syndrome, possibly because I didn't actually start writing that second book until the first book was on the shelves um, because I'm a terrible procrastinator. So 
it was difficult when the first book was so well reviewed and I was sitting down where I'm sitting right now in front of my computer looking at a blank screen and I remember there was one review for distress signals that like is imprinted on my brain I think it was the Irish Times and I called it impeccably sustained with not a false note and there's me sitting in front of a blank page I can't write a sentence of the second book because I'm thinking how can I be impeccably sustained like I can't even string a sentence together so I definitely felt the pressure then but because of that when I was writing Rewind which is the book that's just out now I managed to get that done in a place where I just wasn't paying attention to what was being said about the other books. And, you know, it's nice when people say nice things about your book. It gives you some confidence. Um, you just have to try and not take it too seriously, like take everything with a pinch of salt. And that helps, I think, just concentrate on the book and write the best story you can and enjoy it, which I really love Rewind. It's my favorite of the three, my personal favorite. Um, and so that helped as well, I think. I don't know what it says about you that Rewind is your favorite because it, the the um, premise is really creepy. Um, yeah. It revolves around... A lot about me. <laughs> it, it revolves around a male hotel manager who watches a female guest via a hidden camera in her room and ends up seeing her get murdered. So what on earth was your inspiration? Oh, I, that's a great story. So I don't know if you guys know Post Secret. It's no. a kind of, yeah, it's a community art project where people write their deepest, darkest secrets and they mail them into this guy called Frank Warren. And it's all based in the States. It's anonymous. And he takes these secrets and he puts them online. He makes them into books. He has exhibitions. And a few years ago, I saw a secret that was a picture of a bedroom. And the secret was I trade hidden sex cam footage with other Airbnb hosts. Um, and yeah, <laughs> and wow. that's where I got the idea. That's where I got the idea. So cruise ships, Airbnb. I think I might do planes or something next. I'm just <laughs> trying to drive down the cost of vacations for myself by turning everyone else off them. <laughs> I, all right. Well, look, that's quite enough about books. What are some really good Irish curse words that you think Eric and I should know about? Oh, my God. Am I allowed to say them? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, this is a podcast. I, don't know, I suppose like gobshite is my favorite, like favorite Irish, because it sounds so Irish. Like we do say shite a lot instead of um, shit. And you can actually get away with Irish swearing all the time because um, instead of like the F word, we say feck. So F-E-C-K. Uh -huh. um, and that's technically a swear um, under Irish law, I believe, so that I'm just making up right now. And um, so feck is great because it's so versatile. You can use it for, for everything. So if you know feck and you know gobshite, uh, you can get quite far. People, people will think you're Irish if you just go around swearing with those two words. <laughs> Rewind is available now from Blackstone Publishing, and Steve, for one Lucky Writer Types listener, the book could be yours. That's right. We have a copy to give away if you find us on Twitter at Writer Types and tell us the strangest thing that happened to you at a motel or hotel and use hashtag Rewind. You've been on tour with your rock and roll band, Steve. You probably have a lot of strange happenings at hotel rooms. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do any of them involve murder? I've never killed anything in a bathroom, Eric. Ever. <laughs> Not once. 
Well, it's time once again to check in with our resident reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman. They are here, or uh, rather they're in Minnesota, to tell us what they've been reading this summer and what they're looking forward to this fall. Hi, Eric and Steve. This is Dan. And Kate. And we are back after our long summer hiatus. Happy to be back on the air with Writer Types Podcast. We took the opportunity to read some old catch-up books, and we've got some things lined up in the pipeline that we're excited to tell you all about. Kate, why don't we start with you? All right, so earlier this spring, Dan and I had the opportunity to see Don Winslow speak at a local library. And after seeing him speak, I decided that this summer I was going to read Power of the Dog, his debut novel in the Art Keller series. And this is a brutal tale uh, about the drug war on both sides of the U.S. and the Mexican borders. Uh, There's a reason that Don Winslow is held in such high regard. I think every night when I finished reading, I muttered under my breath, this is not going to end well, and it never did. Uh, So then I picked up something new that came out this summer. It's Miami Midnight, the last book in the Pete Fernandez PI series by Alex Segura. Uh, In this book, Pete has already started a new life, walked away from being a PI, but he gets drawn back in after an aging mobster asks him to find out who murdered the mobster's son, and Pete ends up learning more about his family, learns more about his mom, his background, and Alex goes through and ties up all of the loose ends from the earlier of the series. What'd you read this summer, Dan? Well, very much like you, uh, we had the opportunity to see Stephen King live and in person, and that was just such a a neat experience uh, when you kind of get the opportunity to see your, your literary hero speak. So uh, I took that uh, cue and I went back and I read the entire seven-volume set of the Dark Tower series. So not really related much to crime and mystery per se, but that was Stephen King's sprawling epic, kind of his version of the Lord of the Rings tale. But it was a fantastic accomplishment and I'm glad I did it. Uh, But now that fall is here, we've got some things lined up that we're looking forward to read uh, going forward. I'm really looking forward to Jess Lowry's newest book, Unspeakable Things. It's set in rural Minnesota in the 1980s, and it's inspired by a true tale. And it's a dark tale where someone is abducting and attacking local boys in the city. And middle schooler Cass is determined to figure out what is going on. And this is coming out on January 1st, 2020 from Thomas and Mercer and... I'm halfway through the book, and I'm loving every page. What are you looking forward to, Dan? Uh, One of the neat things about um, hanging out online with social media is you get to find new-to-you authors. So I uh, was lucky enough to grab an advanced copy of the debut novel from Tara Laskowski called One Night Gone. This is coming out October 1st from Graydon House, and it's very much uh, sort of a, a secrets of the past type book where um, there's a a tragedy set 30 years past um, in a a New Jersey seaside town. The heroine comes in kind of digging in the the dark secrets of this rich, well-heeled town. Really calls to mind uh, some of those classic PI stories uh, about what kind of secrets are hidden behind locked doors. This book has garnered a lot of buzz and really should get our fall reading off to a nice start. Uh, Wouldn't you agree? I agree. Eric and Steve, we're going to kick it right back to you. Happy reading. Thanks a lot. Eric, most writers have day jobs, but not very many get to carry guns and bust bad guys in those day jobs. 
Well, that's not true for author J. Todd Scott. He's made a career out of stopping the bad guys as a federal agent with the DEA. And he manages to find time to write the Big Ben trilogy of novels, which includes The Big Empty, High White Sun, and the most recent one, This Side of Night. We caught up with him in between busts and talked about his books and some hard realities of the publishing world. To start off with, do you prefer, should we call you Jay, Jay Todd? What, what's the formal uh, authorly thing to call you? You can call me Todd, actually. That's what my family calls me. Jeffrey's my first name, but I really haven't gone by that much except on the job. So Jay Todd Scott sounded authorly, you know. If we get upset with you at any point during the interview, we're just going to go, Jeffrey Todd Scott, you stop it. <laughs> I've heard that a few times in my life, absolutely. <laughs> well, okay, Todd, the the Big Ben trilogy, uh, it's, it's let's call it epic in scale, would you, would you say? Uh, or long, just really, really long. I've, <laughs> I've heard that, too. <laughs> well... So this takes place on the border uh, where you currently live, uh, you and you happen to tap into very current issues dealing with the, the southwestern border in the United States. I mean, do you see yourself as making any commentary on current events, or uh, would these books have been the same in any political climate? No, I, it, it's interesting. I, I'm in, in a unique situation because of my job, right? I, I'm still an active agent. And these books still get vetted by DEA before they come out. Really? Yeah, curiously enough. You know, typically looking to see if I've given out means or methods or or, or things like that. But I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm still on the job. I still work in these regions uh, that I'm writing about. You know, I still work with many, you know, local sheriffs throughout Texas. So I kind of walk a fine line with these books. I want them to be real and realistic and to reflect what's going on, but I don't necessarily want to get uh, overly specific about, um, you know, either my opinions uh, or anyone else's because on this job, I'm not allowed to have an opinion, right? (laughs) You know, I mean, I I don't, you know, I'm I'm a federal agent. I have a mission, not an opinion. It can be tough to kind of separate those two things. I mean, the the obvious follow-up question then is, what are your feelings about drug policy in Mexico? (laughs) (laughs) But clearly the books reflect a lot of what's going on down there, the reality of of the border, and the reality of my experiences on the border. Good, bad, or indifferent. That's what they do. That seems like a really fine line to walk, and and I, I gotta wonder, do you ever just get home at night and take your badge off and go, you know what, I'm writing sci-fi tonight, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, it's um, you know, it's interesting. I, I have a lot of, I, I write a lot of stuff other than other than this. I have a lot of interest. I don't know if it would be easier maybe to write about this stuff if I was retired. You know, because then when I went on interviews and did book tours and stuff, I could probably talk more freely than I feel like I can do since I'm currently on, on the job. It's got to be interesting uh, to get notes from your publisher and maybe some developmental notes from your agent. But adding the DEA giving you some feedback, that's a whole other level. <laughs> you know, every time I, I turn in a book, uh, I kind of keep my fingers crossed that I haven't crossed over some sort of, you know, inadvertent line. But I'll say that by and large, DEA has both as, a, as an agency and then the fellow, my fellow agents and the guys I work with have all been very supportive. I mean, they want free books. So uh, <laughs> you know. that's why we started this podcast. So that's I guess right. we like the DEA. Right. So, you know, they're cheap. Um, <laughs> but 
you know, I, I've gotten a lot of, of feedback uh, from from guys I work with. They like the fact that it feels real, that, that none of it's overblown. It's uh, it kind of captures both the excitement and boredom of what of what we do and what local law enforcement does as well. Well, the, the Far Empty was your debut novel, but certainly not the first book you wrote, right? Uh, well, yeah, pretty much. I, I, I wrote a, a book that I got agented on, and while that book was kind of, you know, in the spin cycle, I was working on the border, and I had that first line, my, my father's killed three men. I had it written on a scrap of paper and didn't have a story to it, and then sat down and, 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 and wrote what became The Far Empty, and so it was actually my second book. When I wrote The Far Empty, I really didn't know what I was doing. It could be argued that all these books later, I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, and, and there's some value in that, right? Because you just you don't know what you don't know, so you just write what you think is interesting. But I've been more cognizant of trying to get better at what I do. You know, I, I think as you and I, Eric, have talked about, you know, there's there's writing as an art and as a craft, which I still love, and then there's publishing as a business, which I still don't understand and which I struggle with, right? And at some point, those two things intersect. That's where I'm kind of learning to live. How do you how do you write books that people want to read? How do you write books that, that, that sell so you can keep writing books? You know, how do you get better? So following up on that, you went through a sort of tumultuous editing process on your next book, but then had another novel already locked and loaded that's actually going to come out first. So in your mind, is that proof that finishing the book is really only the, the beginning of the process? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, writing, as much as it's an art, it's also just work. And, and so I'm a, if I finish a book on a Friday, I start another one on a Saturday, and I mm -hmm. just keep going. And I don't get too passionate about any one book. I mean, I love them all. But I understand that not everything I do is going to work, or at least not work out of the box. So if something's not working, then I have no problem putting it in a drawer and working on the next thing or trying the next thing or keeping at it. Because I believe consistency and just putting out credible work and putting out stuff is how you kind of build some longevity here. And being prepared for people not to like what you're doing. And that's okay. You know, you want your editor and publisher to like something eventually, but... You know, you, you write these books and it's a high wire act the whole time you do them. And when you get done, maybe maybe you landed it, maybe you didn't. And you just move on to the next thing and, and, and keep going. Well, Eric, did, did you know people are supposed to like our books? Is that? <laughs> I, 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 I didn't realize that was part of the equation. No. I'm taking a lot of notes right now. I, I'm just Todd has, has a very mature outlook on on the publishing industry. That that's usually it takes people years and years and a lot of uh, depression to to reach the sort of zen state you've already achieved. Well, I gotta think that it has a lot to do with down chasing bad guys for a living, you know. Yeah. Well, and, and, and yeah, I mean, trust me, I've thrown stuff against the wall more more than once. But you know, you realize that that doesn't doesn't help, doesn't move the needle, and you know, you either have to accept that this is what the industry is and accept failure as part of it or you probably need to find something else to do i can recall when the far empty came out you know no one had really read my stuff and it sold pretty quickly and so according to the, my publisher my agent i was a genius and this was going to be the next big hit and you know all this sort of stuff and i was already planning my my award speeches and i got my first review uh that came out on the far empty from a, a place i won't mention and they hammered it. They oh. hated it. 
so this was the first review I had ever had of anything I had written, and it was not good. And, of course, you have to live with those reviews for a while. And I'm like, well, my career is dead already, I, you know, and I was devastated. You know, and here I am. I, I, I chase all these, like you said, chase all these bad guys, do all this stuff. I've been, you know, fighting on dope deals, and nothing affected me the way that review did. Right? It, wow. It, and I just said, I'm over. I'm done. You know, and my family's like, you, you got to pick yourself up. This is embarrassing. And um, <laughs> you know, my, I love uh, the Scots, man. The right, Scots uh, are solid people. Right. Well, and my publisher uh, and my editor, she sent me. They sent me a bottle of whiskey, and they said. You know what? This is what the industry is, and you've got to be tougher than this. And not everybody's going to like what you do, uh, but we like what you're doing. So I got that bottle. I poured me a few glasses, and then the next day got up and start writing again. So I got humbled early and got some perspective early. That in some ways helped me. I got humbled early, and I get humbled repeatedly. So. <laughs> I like the idea that he could literally be facing down a bad guy with a gun, but the worst thing that that guy could do would be like, your books suck. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and Eric, I, I know you, you forgot I had a lot of books out there and, and, you know, you've probably gotten somewhat thick skinned at, at this and, and, you know, but I hadn't, you know, I just, this whole thing was new to me. And, you know, I, the first book I obsessively read reviews, which, you know, is a rabbit hole. No one should ever be. <laughs> You know, everything I thought about having a book out, you know, the seeing it on the shelf was great and, and people talking about it was great. But then I realized that it's a double edged sword because oh, yeah. now you and now you have this thing out here and now you now you're being judged by it and, and not everyone likes it. And, you know, some people are very vocal about what they don't like, you know, um, <laughs> and uh, it, it was it was a great lesson. And I, it's been made the other books easier because you just understand it's part of the process. And I think I also have an advantage is that I've had this long career. I still have it. And if all the book stuff ended tomorrow, well, I still have a job. I still have something I'm passionate about and in theory good at. And so this has been a, it's a great run. You know, books will always be in bargain bins or sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, I got a lot more success out of this than I ever imagined I would get. In a, in, a, in a short amount of time. So I'm, I'm ahead no matter what. Well, Steve, it, in the course of one interview, we've talked him into retirement. <laughs> Congratulations. Here's your gold watch. Right. <laughs> well, Todd, okay. It, the thing that Steve and I really want to know, let's, let's say yes. you're on the job. Yes. And you see two young punks like us. Mm-hmm. How, would, how do you think arresting Steve and I would go for you? Well, I, here's the thing is I'm not very tall. I'm only 5'5", five, five, so I don't look at first blush very agent-like. Now, there's a lot of guys who, you know, look like Navy SEALs and lots of stuff, so my advantage always was looking somewhat unassuming. And so arresting guys like you, I would have the advantage of surprise, much like a badger. I could just suddenly <laughs> attack and bring, you, and bring you down. We get a lot of runners nowadays. And I'm not. I'm at an age where I'm not chasing anybody. Uh, so um, I've been known to just sit in my car on the radio and say, "Yeah, I see him two blocks over. You guys better get him before he gets over that fence." Steve and I are not climbing any fences anytime soon. <laughs> well, it, it was a trick question from the jump because Eric described us as young. <laughs>
Well, Steve, that was a good one. A lot of great conversations. Uh, I laughed and I learned a lot. Me too, Eric. Laura Benedict taught us the wisdom of showering with a hammer. And Catherine Ryan Howard taught us how to get away with murder on the high seas. And J. Todd Scott taught us not to underestimate a short guy with a badge and a gun. Well, remember to find us on Twitter at WriterTypes and enter for your chance to win a copy of Catherine Ryan Howard's Rewind, courtesy of our sponsor, Blackstone Publishing. If you like the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and take a moment to rate the show. It helps other listeners find us, and it's really good for our fragile egos. <laughs> That's right, because it's just the two of us making this show, Steve. We do everything. We produce, we edit, we do our own costumes and makeup. Maybe we should get like an intern or something. We should. And we're accepting applications for interns at Writer Types. Send us your resume. We will consider you for an unpaid position. Does that mean that I'm going to get promoted out of my internship role? You can stop getting me coffee that I don't drink. There's just stacks and stacks of undrunk coffee cups sitting on your desk. I have to let you know your status within the Writer Types organization, Steve. Oh, I'm painfully aware. <laughs> Maybe it is time to kill somebody in the bathroom. <laughs> Well, you know, we're also authors, Steve. Both what? <laughs> it's true. And if you want to know more about Steve's books, go to swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. See you next month for more great author interviews and for our special Boo Halloween episode.